for that. That's good. So, so you'll notice all those guys that have their T-shirts, they have what's called their, their, their game tag. Is that what you call it? You can tell I know what I'm talking about, right? So, so they printed up my own T-shirt. So I think they're hoping that I'm going to become a gamer. So, so Father Fred right there on the back. I know, I know. So if you were here for, for uh, Oktoberfest, you can appreciate why that's funny. So if not, the person next to you explain it to you, right? All right, all right, all right. So I've never, I've never gotten into gaming. So everybody always asks me, you know, do you play? I'm like, I would become the most unproductive human being in the world if I had one of those, like many of you, if, uh, if I had one of those, one of those, they were telling me stories about guys that take off like from work for like three days and just play nonstop. I'm like, who, who are they married to, right? Yeah, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, I'm going to stop before I get myself in trouble. All right, City Life After Dark, you know, this is week seven for us. This is the wrap-up of this series that we've been in now. And uh, oh, it's going to be, we've, we're dialing in our series for December. All of December, we're going to be talking about grace, and uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And, and then next weekend, we're kind of in between series. Pastor Christoph, my brother-in-law, the lead pastor at Christian Life Center, he's going to be coming, and he's going to be preaching at both campuses next weekend. So you're going to be in for a treat. It's going to be a great weekend together. So, so tonight's our wrap-up, City Life After Dark. And you can listen to the podcast from week one to hear what this, this is. What is that humming? Do you hear that? Wow. All right. Apparently there's a bomb getting ready to go off behind the sanctuary. So I have no idea what that is. Do you hear that? Okay. They're on it. So City Life, City Life After Dark, you can get the podcast from the first week that will explain what that means in greater detail. But the idea is that this speaks to the culture of our church. Thank you. Ryan is our hero. Everybody get up for Ryan. Sound guys, sound guys like to be behind. You're with me? They don't like that coming out in the front. So appreciate that, Ryan. Speaks to the culture of our church, an important part of the culture of our church. It's a phrase that means that we are a, a congregation of people that have said we're going to stop denying ourselves some of our deepest needs. We're our own worst enemies oftentimes in life. And one of the greatest needs that you and I have is to give ourselves permission to ask the questions that we have about faith and spirituality. One of the greatest needs that you have is to give yourself permission to say, I don't know if I believe that. It's to give yourself permission to say, if I, that doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's to give yourself permission to say, like with Teresa's story, it's powerful. And she's, she didn't share this. She's, she's legally blind. Teresa's legally blind, right? And you hear that story. It just feels like God's picking on somebody, does it not? It feels that way sometimes. It, sometimes for you, it might feel like that. You've got to give yourself permission to raise your hand and say, this is what it feels like to me. I'm just saying. And let people come along beside you. We're not saying that we have all the answers. We're saying it every week, but we know the one who does. And we'd love to go on a journey with you asking those questions of why to God. Those questions don't frighten him. And so many people, they live their whole lives with those questions bottled up on the inside, but not here. We want to give you a sense of permission, to have a sense of liberty, and to have a sense of freedom, to ask God the questions that you're carrying deep inside. Been sharing this each week, Luke 9, 45, it says, but they, speaking of the disciples, did not know what he, referring to Jesus, meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it. And all of us have been at, in places in our lives like this. Maybe you're in a place like that this weekend. Maybe you've been in a place like that for some time. And the last part of this verse is the tragic part. 
and they were afraid to ask him about it. Come on, let's not let that ever be you and I. Give yourself permission to raise your hand and say, these are the questions that I've been carrying on the inside. So these are all the questions that we've been working with through over the last several weeks. We'll start at the bottom. We spent the first week doing all three. Can I rely on God? Can God rely on me? Can I rely on myself? Then we spent a weekend talking about what if I could have anything, right? What if you could ask for anything that you wanted and you had an audience with a person who had the power to give it to you? We spent a whole weekend talking about that. We were digging around in the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, someone who found himself with an audience with the creator of the universe and what did he ask for? We talked about this idea, can I be so heavenly minded that I'm of no earthly good? We spent a week talking about how can I get there from here, right? I know the husband that I am and I know the one that I want to be, but how do I get there from here? I know the, the, the child that I am. I know the sibling that I am. I know the worker, the employee, the soldier that I am. I know the one that I am. I know the one that I want to be, but how do I get there from here? We spent a week talking about that. And then for the last three weeks, we've been digging around on the big one at the top. What makes something a sin? We've been digging around with this idea of who gets to decide that this is right and this is wrong. Who, who gets to choose for us, you're free to do this, but you're not free to do that. And to explore that, we've been looking at Matthew 15, 1 through 20. And it's this conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders of his day, and he's a little upset. Jesus is, is frustrated with the religious leaders of his day because they have violated one of their most sacred responsibilities as a spiritual leader. They've created an unhealthy dependent relationship between the crowd and themselves. And they've created an unhealthy dependent relationship in the sense that they don't want people to think for themselves. They've created an unhealthy dependent relationship because it feeds their ego. It makes them feel important. It, they, they don't want people to think for themselves so that they're always going to have to come to them to get permission from them about the do's and the don'ts. And Jesus says, hey, that's not what you're supposed to do as a spiritual leader. One of your most sacred responsibilities as a spiritual leader is to give people a sense of confidence, to begin to wrestle with truth on their own. One of the greatest gifts that you give to people is to teach them the questions that they're supposed to ask and then encourage them to go on a journey with the Spirit of God and then to find their way forward. Not that you're not going to be there to help them, not that they're not going to need other people around them to help them figure it out, but that you have got to be begin to instill in them a sense of confidence to say, I know how to begin to sort through some of this on my own. We want to be that kind of church for you. We want to be that kind of church for you. And so we've been talking about some questions. We've been talking about five questions that you should be asking yourself if you're wrestling with the question of what makes something a sin. If you're looking at something in your life, if you're looking at something in somebody else's life, the first week we said, hey, you should be asking yourself the question, am I giving God the final say? Or if you're in a conversation with someone else, maybe you're asking them that. Are, are you giving God the final say? Is there something in your heart that says, I'm fully surrendered to him? So last night we were in Williamsburg for a banquet for Heart for Orphans. It's one of the missions organizations that we're getting involved in. Amazing group. Uh, Nancy Hathaway, who's the founder, who lives right there in Williamsburg, is going to be coming and speaking here in February. And they told us the amazing story last night after the banquet of, of the first child they ever adopted. They went over to adopt a, a, a young girl from the Ukraine, and it was through that adoption that this whole ministry is launched. And now they have these discipleship homes all throughout. They have over 100 
teenagers who age out of an orphanage and they've got nowhere to go, over 100 of these teenagers in these discipleship homes. It's an amazing work, all because God put a burden on this woman's heart. It's a powerful story. But the first girl that they adopted, first girl that they adopted, she, in telling her own story, she was wrestling with this idea of, am I going to give God the final say? Not, not because she was just wrestling with this one question of what makes something a sin, but she was just wrestling with the idea, am I going to surrender my heart to the creator of the universe? And, am I really going to be all in with this idea of Christianity? And the, and the day that she said, you know what, God, I don't understand everything that this means, but I know that I've got to give my heart to you. All of who I am belongs to you. The very, the very next day, she met the Hathaways and the process of adoption began to her, for her living in an orphanage. You think that's no way. Is that a coincidence, right? Come on. That's God saying, I want you to understand that if you give your heart to me, Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. Come on. The favor of God doesn't always come that quick, but it always comes. It always comes. That's his promise to us. So Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders saying, hey, not only are you failing people because you're not teaching them to think for themselves, but you're not even involving God in your own conversation with all of these rules that you're giving to people. They weren't even give, giving God the final say in their own lives. And the next one that we looked at was this idea of, of is it a sin that has an expiration date? And then we, we, we looked at this, this idea of, we looked at this idea, which we're going to look at tonight, that there's three final questions that you've got to begin to engage in as you're asking yourself the question, what makes something a sin? God has the final say. Is it a sin that has an expiration date? That was last week. And the three that we want to dig around together because they kind of work in tandem with each other, is, is, is it timeless morality? Is it a matter of conscience or is it a foregoing of liberty? As in every week we've, been, have, we've had these laundry baskets up here. And so tonight, towards the end, we're going to take some very specific issues that happen in our society. We're going to talk about which one they belong in. Timeless morality, matters of conscience, or foregoing liberties. All right, so that's just a little setup for the text that we're going to be looking in tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Did I say Romans 9? Why did I say Romans 9? Maybe I'm supposed to preach out of Romans 9 tonight, huh? All right, Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. Come on, that's a good rule to live by, isn't it? If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, and you must not covet. These and other such commandments. So Paul is saying here to the church of Rome, hey, there is a category of wrongdoing that will always be wrong. It's why he's inserting the word must in here. He's, he's, he's getting ready to introduce the other two that we're going to look at in just a minute. So he's opening with this idea of timeless morality. He's saying to the church of Rome, hey, let me give you some examples of some things that were wrong a thousand years ago. They're wrong today. And a thousand years from now, they're still going to be wrong. And even today, we, we look at this list and we say, yes, that's wrong. It's wrong for me. It's wrong for other people. There's, just a, there's a sense of intuitiveness when it comes to universal morality, especially the ones 
that he listed here. These and other such commandments, meaning that they're timeless morality issues, they're summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Paul's giving us one of the great insights to understand whether or not something's crossed the threshold of sin. Is, is there harm involved? He's, he's, he's giving us a great insight here. As you're wrestling with this idea, whether it's a timeless morality, a matter of conscience, or forgoing liberty, and we're going to explain those in just a minute, but as you dig into those three categories, you begin to realize whether or not something is supposed to be a sin for you is if it harms someone else or it harms yourself. Paul's saying, hey, then that's wrong. It's a sin. It's missing the mark. Verse 11 says, this is all the more urgent for you because you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. He's talking about the return of Christ to the world. The night is almost gone and the day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Come on, that's, that's good language right there, isn't it? Take off the dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. So what's the dirtiest you've ever been? On the outside. That frightened some of you, didn't it? I hope he's not going to ask me to share that. I've heard that there's participation at the City Life Church. I hope we're not going there right now. What's the dirtiest you've ever been? I mean, your clothes, your clothes. The dirty, I mean, you just said, I'm just filthy, dirty. Tyler. Church can't play basketball for about six straight hours. Yes, that's, yeah. Tear. Volleyball. Mud volleyball. I don't know if I'm familiar with that. That sounds dirty. Scott. Had to wear the same clothes for three straight days. Why is that? A layover in Vegas and a layover in New York. He was in the same clothes for three straight days. Alan. Changing out an engine on his car. Abs yeah, that's dirty. Stan in the back. Yep. Working in a silo on a farm. Jen. Pressure washing a sidewalk next to a flower bed. Laura. Caving. Covered in bat poop. All right, that's pretty dirty. She, she, might, she might be in the lead so far. Keegan. Playing a football game in the mud. Last one, Jenna. There you go. Hold on to the car. So the dirtiest I've ever been? Dirtiest I've ever been. Vanessa just said, oh. When I was in high school, the main sewer line under our house. Yeah, I know. You feel my pain, right? So have you ever worked in a crawl space before, right? You can't. There's no maneuvering. There's no getting out of the way of anything. So you ever worked with a, with a rotor rooter before, right? The thing that you stick in the pipe. So me and my dad under there just working all day. When we were done, we were covered in, well, you know what I mean, right? And so when we, were, when we were done, when we were done, we were in the yard and my mom said, take off those clothes, right? Those clothes are not going in my watch. So we stripped down to our underwear, right? Right there in the yard, all the clothes went into a garbage bag and went into a trash can, right? Never to be seen ever again. 
It's a powerful image, isn't it? The dirtiest that you've ever been, the dirtiest that I've ever been, God says, this is what he says to us. That's what you look like to me on the inside. That's what sin does to us. It covers us in something that's not supposed to be a part of who we are. And the beauty of God is that he gives you an embrace long before, long before he ever expects you to be clean. Long before. We're going to be talking about that in our grace series in December. But right here, Paul is saying, hey, you can live your life in such a way that it's like taking off the old dirty clothes that you've had on. And come on, 2,000 years ago, people understood what it meant to be dirty, just like you understand it tonight. Paul was saying, hey, you can take that stuff off. You don't have to put that stuff back on. You don't have to wear that. There's a different kind of clothing that's called right living that Paul says, hey, I want you to be clothed in that. And if he wants us to be clothed in that, then he wants us to understand how to get there. And he's already started in his conversation with the Church of Rome that started for us tonight. He's saying, hey, the things that you know are timeless morality issues. The things that you know that they've always been wrong, they're wrong now, they're going to be wrong forever, just don't pick that stuff up and put it on. Just don't do it. All right, verse 13. It says, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness. All right, he's going back into a list. The darkness of wild parties and drunkenness and in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. I like that he slipped those in. You like that he slipped those in? Because a lot of people might be able to say those first few, they're not really a part of who I am. But then Paul says, hey, there's, there's some other things that don't have to do with outward living. There's some things that have to do with inward living, and they're still rampant in the church. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. What does Paul say? Paul says, don't even think about it. Right, because he understands what James would eventually write, the brother of Jesus, and writing the book of James, he says, It starts as a desire and it ends in death. James chapter 1. Every sin in your life began as an idea. And Paul's saying, If you're going to conquer this idea, if you're going to conquer this idea of not clothing yourself with immorality, things that you know that are wrong, then you've got to be in control of your mind. It's what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, right? We submit every thought into the captivity of Christ. It begins up there. All right, Acts 14. I mean, wow. Romans 9, Acts 14. All right. Chapter 14. I need to write that down because apparently there's a really good sermon in both of those texts. All right. Romans 14, except, I love this part. This is where he goes, right? Because when the Bible was originally written, right, you know that there were no chapters and verses, right? All that was added later to help us study. It was just a letter, right? So, so Paul didn't end one chapter and go to another. He's flowing right in his letter and right in the same thought where he says, don't even think about your evil desires. He picks right up. He says, and accept other believers who are weak in the faith. He's saying, hey, in your church, not everybody's going to do a good job with what we're talking about, but do not reject them. He's saying, hey, not everybody in your church, as Teresa says, once you pull back the veil, is going to be a Rachel. They might be a Leah to you, and you might be disappointed, but you better not reject those people. The last thing that those people need from you is to be pushed away when they need to be pulled all the closer because God didn't treat you that way. You better not treat other people that way. Except other believers who are weak in the faith. 
Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes that all, that, that it's right to eat anything. Okay, I'm one of those people just for the record. For instance, one person believes it's right. All right, so just another side story. So last night at the banquet, right, we had invited one couple to come, uh, some area pastors, and they weren't able to make it because she had last-minute surgery on her knee yesterday yesterday morning. And so they're vegans, and, and so we had given some special dietary rules for their meal for, at our table. And so it created a moral dilemma for Vanessa and myself because we're omnivores, right? And so we had invited another couple to come, and so we said, are we going to stick them with the vegan plates or are we going to take it upon ourselves, right? There is a cross that you must bear at times in life. I should have taken a picture of when everybody else, you know, they pull that, and it was a really nice place. So, so they, have, they, they serve the plates with the metal cover, you know, and it takes off, right? And then you get to see, and everybody's like, ooh, ah, and we got to ours, and we we're like, okay. <laughs> right? This is why. This is why. We're omnivores. I think it was like three pieces of brown rice and a squash. I'm not sure. I leaned over to Vanessa, and I said, I think we might be stopping at the 7-Eleven for beef jerky on the way home. Even just for principle's sake. Even just for principle's sake. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. Listen to this. Let's back up a minute. It says, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Now, now Paul's not using this phrase here, a sensitive conscience, in a derogatory way. He's not. He's introducing the second category of this grouping of three questions. There's issues of, that are of a timeless morality. And then he says here, he's introducing the second category here. And for some, it's a matter of conscience. Means that it might feel wrong to you if you do it, but it might not feel wrong to somebody else. And Paul is helping the church of Rome, and we want to be a church that understands it. He's saying, hey, everything doesn't belong in the category of timeless morality. If you put everything in there, you're going to be a church that's always in contention with each other, and you're also going to be a church that ends up in a place of legalism. You have to make room for this idea of matters of conscience, that it might feel wrong to you, but it might not feel wrong to somebody else, and you've got to give them permission to have their liberty and don't expect them to have the conscience that God created you with. They'll eat only vegetables, but those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. For who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge them whether or not they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. And he gives us another example, which is important to us, being a Saturday night congregation. Come on. In the same way, some think that one day is more holy than another day. Go Saturday night. While others think every day is alike, you should be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable, and those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him, and those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. There's your biblical reference for saying a prayer before you eat. I'm just saying it's right there. When we first got married, I was like, I thought you were a Christian, Vanessa. I, I didn't know, Right? We pray before we eat, right? I just, right? I'm just, I'm just saying. It's in Romans 14. It's right there. All right, those who refuse, we heard someone talking at a conference not so long ago. It was hilarious. They said they pray over their groceries when they bring them in and unload them. And that just covers the blessing for all the meals that will. Isn't that great? Come on. You can clap for that. That's good. That's good. And we're just, we're just throwing it in for free. Just as you're bringing in the groceries, Lord, bless this food 
And then you can go right to eating. Go right to eating. Doesn't matter when you do it. Paul said it right here. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose. To be Lord both of the living and of the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Verse 12, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God, so let's stop condemning each other. Here comes the third category. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. These groupings of verses in the Bible, I would argue that there's no other grouping of verses that are more, there's some that are of equal importance, there's no other grouping of verses that are more important to helping us understand the answer to this question of what is sin. Paul here, the church is new, it's fragile, it's called the way, and, and it's, 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 it's taking off to the degree that it's threatening one of the greatest empires in the world that's ever seen in history, the Roman Empire. And Paul is saying, hey, this thing is going to be bigger than any of us ever imagined. Let's make sure they understand how they're supposed to move forward because one day we're not going to be here anymore. Let's leave them with the truth that they need to practice. And so here in this letter, he's saying, hey, you, you all have got to get this right. There are things that are timeless morality issues. There are things that are matters of conscience. And then he slips it in here. There's something that he's saying I want to teach you about. It's called foregoing liberties. It means that it's not an issue of timeless morality. It doesn't violate your conscience personally, but you choose to give up that which you're at liberty to do for the sake of your brother. It's powerful, isn't it? It's one of the great hallmarks of spiritual maturity. People who are willing to walk in the idea of foregoing liberties. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. Praise the Lord. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong, right? If it's a matter of conscience for them and they, and they do it, then they've sinned because they violated their conscience. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Come on. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. That's a low blow, isn't it? Paul, I mean, he's just, he's saying, I'm not letting you off the hook here. Verse 16, then you will not be criticized for doing something that you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now I want to jump down to the last verse in 23 and the last part of that verse. Paul says, if you do anything, if you do anything you believe is not right, then you're sinning. And he finishes his thought that way, I believe, because he's reaching up and he's touching on all three. He's saying, if you do something that you know is not right because it falls into the category of timeless morality, then you've committed a sin. If you're doing something that violates your own conscience, then you've committed a sin. If you're doing something when you're around someone else and you know that it's bothersome to them and you do it anyways, then you've committed a sin. 
Because at every step of the way, he says, you're either harming someone else or you're harming your own self. And that's like taking up that pile of dirty clothes and just climbing back into them. And Jesus says, hey, there's a better way for you to live. All right, you want to tackle some of them? Let's do some of them tonight. Can we do that? Come on. Somebody said, did you bring your laundry? I said, yeah, the monks at the monastery across the street do my laundry for me on, on Saturdays. That's why we meet in this building. It's a little side deal I've got going on. So, All right. So I've got some. So let's do this. We'll call this timeless morality right here. Can we do that? This is going to be matters of conscience, and that's going to be foregoing liberties. Do you ever try to write on one of these rags with a Sharpie before? I'm telling you, it's not the easiest thing in the world. All right, let's start with this one. The big S word. Now, I know what you're thinking, but it's not that one. We're going to do that one later. <laughs> this is called the Sabbath. The Sabbath day. So if you don't practice a Sabbath day of rest, what are you thinking? Is it a timeless morality? Is it a matter of conscience? Or is it a forgoing liberty? Any, 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 any takers? Yeah, timeless morality. It, yeah, I think it is too. I think it's a, a timeless morality issue. We, we preach on practicing a Sabbath at least once a year here at the City Life Church. It's not a coincidence that God dropped it as part of the Big Ten. Every other one of the Ten Commandments, immediately you would say, oh, that's timeless morality, right? Every one of them you would say, without hesitation, oh, that's wrong. But this idea of practicing rest, we've left that one behind. We want to be a church that raises this back up and says, no, you need this in your life. If you don't, you're harming yourself. I'm absolutely convinced that there are going to be people who are devoted followers of Christ who get to heaven and God's going to say to them, you weren't supposed to be here for another 10 years. Right? And this just doesn't fall into the, this idea of a Sabbath, this idea of a rest is a much broader concept that falls into this realm of timeless morality. It's, it's called taking care of your physical body. It's called the stewardship of your physical body. So this idea that we're free to eat anything, but we're not free to how we do it. Does that make sense? So I know it was a hard message the week before Thanksgiving, right? We're just saying, if you're harming this physical body that God gave to you to be your tool so that you can fulfill your destiny, if you're not taking care of it, it goes into this basket. All right. Any guessers of what the T stands for? Who said it? Tithing? No, but let's talk about that. No. <laughs> That's great. How about tobacco products? Let's talk about that. I know we're, we're just going to step on the toes. Come on, right out of the gate. No, but they are, are these not the questions that people are asking you? Or you're asking yourself. You're asking yourself. I'm doing this one after that one because I'm just, this is how, we want you to think for yourself as a church. We don't want to give you the list of the do's and the don'ts. We want to give you what Paul gave to the early church and what the Holy Spirit's giving to us is the ability to think what makes something a sin. Am I giving God the final say? Is it a sin that expired? That's all the dietary laws. We talked about all of it last week. But now this idea, is it timeless morality? Is it a matter of conscience or is it a forgoing of a liberty? So if you believe that your physical body is sacred, then that should begin to answer this question for you. 
It doesn't mean that, that, that you've got to walk out of here tonight and say all the things that I know that I'm wrestling, I have to stop them tomorrow. God does not expect you to undress the dirty clothes you're wearing all at once like my mom expected my dad and I to do when we were cleaning out this. You're with me? He says, let's start with this one and then we'll move on to the next one. And as a church, that's part of our journey with you to saying, hey, we're not going to demand of you a pace that's faster than what God's demanded from us. Now, can there be some use of tobacco products that is done in a way that's non-habit forming and doesn't put your physical body at risk? I think somebody could make a case for that. And then I think it would squarely fall into this world of a matter of conscience. But, but if, if our use of something, whether it's tobacco or a certain kind of food or, or something that we don't do, like say not by exercise, it's this idea if we're harming ourselves, something inside of us should say, this doesn't feel right. Now, let me say this too. This idea, if it's a matter of conscience, it will always be a candidate for forgoing of liberty. Does that make sense? We're going to explain that in just a minute. All right. Come on. We want to be a church that teaches you how to think. Right? So one of my kids the other day said, Dad, did you know that there's another kind of rating for movies? I said, no, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> Your mom might know something. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about those kinds of ratings. I thought they were just all G. Disney doesn't make all the movies. I was just shocked. Shocked. Right. All right. Pornography. A sexual active life outside of marriage. You with me? Self-gratification within marriage. These are questions that our world is wrestling with right now like they've never wrestled with before. And the church has got to be able to step in and have that conversation. The church can't step in and beat people over the head. Who, who wants to be treated that way? God didn't treat you that way. He certainly doesn't send us into the world to treat people that way. He wants us to engage in a conversation because that's what he did with each of us, to open up a dialogue. This idea of pornography, and, and, and we've taught on it here before, and we teach on it with our young people. We usually teach on it at CNU at least once a year. But, you know, your sexuality, it's impressionable. And any type of experience that you step into that is arousing to you makes an imprint on your sexuality. It actually makes an imprint on the pleasure center of your brain. When you begin to engage in arousing activities, you are actually training your body chemistry. Did you know that? There's a reason why he says wait, because he wants the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with to be the only person that makes the imprint on your sexuality. And any imprint that you allow to come onto your sexuality that's other than the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with competes with that person for the rest of their life. Now, there's a journey that people can go through to, for healing of that that's spiritual and also practical, and that's for another sermon for another time. But what makes this wrong, what makes this wrong is that you're not protecting one of the sacred parts of who you are. Your sexuality is a gift that God's given to you, and there's only one person that's supposed to make an imprint on that, and that's your spouse. And so if you're making imprints on your sexuality, then you're harming your spouse because you're creating something in your life that competes with them and in an area that they shouldn't have to compete with anybody ever. All right, I'm gonna, I'll get carried away talking about that. We're passionate about that one. All right, that one goes in here. I'm not even giving you a choice. 
Literacy. No, it doesn't stand for literacy. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Anybody know what this one is? Right? This is what we called it in college. When I was immersed in a life of debauchery, we called it the alphabet store. Right? None of you know what that is, I know. Oh, but you can't see that. It says ABC. It says ABC. It says ABC. Only the front row people can. ABC, the alphabet store. All right, so let me, so let me ask you this one. How, how many people would say alcohol use of any kind falls into the realm of timeless morality? Let me show hands. Anybody? Come on, I like this church. <laughs> All right, how, many, how many would say it falls into this realm here? You feel like you're on a game show or not, right? How many people would say it falls into this area of a matter of conscience? Let me see your show of hands. Yeah. And if it's a matter of conscience, then we've already established that it falls into the category of forgoing liberties. And this is going to be a great one to explain why that. I agree. I agree with you. It's not an issue of, of, of timeless morality. Drunkenness is an issue of timeless morality. The Bible is very clear about that. Intoxication, it's, it's trouble. He says, don't do it, right? But... But there's a way to, to, to use alcohol in a way that is non-habit-forming and also is non-intoxicating. The Bible says, hey, you're, you're, you're free to do that. But not everybody might feel free to do that. That's where it falls into this idea of matter of conscience. And what makes a church a healthy place is when people can say, hey, no, you know, that I don't feel comfortable doing that. But that you don't begin to see yourself as superior because other people don't share that same conviction in their heart. That's what Paul's trying to teach the church, and it's, it's got to be something that we get a hold of even in our modern-day world. And so this idea of, 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 of forgoing liberties, this one's a huge one for that, right? So you might go to B-dubs, and you just might be used to having a beer with your wings when you're watching the game, but what if you've got an old college buddy that calls you up and wants to go, or a guy used to serve with the military overseas, and you know that person's a recovering alcoholic. When you go to B-dubs, what are you going to order? It better be a Coke. You with me? right? Because you should say, I'm at liberty to do it, but I'm going to forgo the liberty for the greater good of the person that I'm with. You tracking with me? So for, for me personally, as a pastor, you're not ever going to see me having a beer at Buffalo Wild Wings. Not ever. Not ever. If you track me down in the Outer Banks when I'm on vacation with my family, you may or may not find me finding my beach somewhere while I'm there. You with me? Be because there's this idea of who you're with and where you are that helps determine the permission you have. The who you're with and where you are helps determine the permission that you have. The mission trip that we just went on to the Dominican Republic, it was one of the rules. They said, we don't want anybody to consume alcohol while you're here in country on this trip. Is that something that we're at liberty to? Sure it is. But them, as a group of pastors coming in, they said, we, we don't want anything to happen, to even people to see, that would cause them to stumble. Spiritual maturity says, I will give up any liberty that I have if in doing so I can advance the cause of Christ. All right, come on. i got a couple of more. Music. Music. I know. I hear a lot of old boys are coming from this area right here. Right? Not pointing at anybody. Not just, just echoing. Just echoing. Right? Music. All right, so how many of you would say that, that any kind of secular music at all falls into this category of, of timeless morality? Shouldn't do it. 
You guys are partying church. A little Leonard Skinner and some Southern comfort for some of you after the service tonight. I don't it's, I was just, yeah, Nate was texting something about that. I don't know what that is. Matter of conscience and forgoing liberty. So if I, could, if I could tear this rag into three parts, I would put something in each one. I'd put something in each one. Because depending on what the music is that you're listening to and the impact that it has on society and the world, I'm just going to have to say, I'm going to have to argue pretty hard for timeless morality. If, if it's the kind of music that just openly and blatantly speaks defamation against the name of Christ, I'm, you're just going to have a hard time. Now, I'm willing to enter into a conversation because that's what we're talking about tonight, right? I'm willing to have a dialogue. I'm just saying that I'm going to be hard to come to some agreement with you if it's, if it's that goes that far, how it doesn't fit in here. One of the, well, this is one of the things that I ask myself, which we're going to get to in just a minute. Would I watch this and would I listen to this with Jesus? Great clarity comes to me quite often. Great clarity comes to me. I think this one, I think we all get that. That could fall to lots of different kinds. All right. Two more. Come on, the movies, right? I'm sorry, an R. It's an R. So maybe some of you have grown up in a home, you've grown up in a church that says, right, if it's, once it crosses a certain rating, it's always going to go into this basket. Now, we can say that with the other one, but as you begin to work your way down the ratings, so I'm just telling you what I do for my own personal life. It's, it's a conversation. You've got to find your own journey. For me, the content is more significant than the rating. There might be some PG-13 movies that I'm never, ever going to watch that to me, because of their content, because of my own personal convictions, they cross a line. I'm just saying that, that don't just rely on the letter that gets stamped on it. I use crosswalk.com, and they do some great movie content stuff. There's lots of websites out there, but I do not walk into a movie theater to see any movie, any movie at all, until I've gone onto there to see what's the content, because I want to make an informed decision about what I'm going to sit through and spend my money on. We're not telling you as a church what's right or wrong. What we want to do as a church is teach you how to think. We want to teach you how to think. Is it fall into this idea of timeless morality? Is it a personal conviction or is it forgoing of liberties? I think this one I think we'll all say falls there. All right, this is my last one. Then we're going to worship one last song. This is a cartoon cussing symbols right here, which I have to say this was my best work of art here on the uh, automotive rags. Profanity. Come on. Are these not the questions? Have you not asked these questions of yourself that we're talking about tonight? Come on. We want it to be real here at the City Life Church. We want it to be real. We want doctrine to be instructive to how we live every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. So, so, so how many people would say profanity falls into the realm of timeless morality? Anybody? Certain words. Which ones would you say, Jenna? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it's great. This is why it should be a dialogue, right? This is why it should be dialogue because we know that in, in our culture, in society, right, there's some words, it's how it instructs the ratings of movies. Some words are, they're, they're the heavy hitter words and some are less offensive. So it's a conversation. My, my response to, for my own personal journey, anything that takes the Lord's name in vain right out of the gate is a timeless morality because it's part of the Ten Commandments. 
So just using God's name and, and, and anything like that, just Jesus is anything that's using it just in a casual way, we, for, I think that crosses the line. But then as you get into these other words, for, for some of you here, you might say, you know what, Fred, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that all of those words are bad. So we're saying it's a journey. If you're asking yourself the question, what makes something a sin? If you start by saying, am I giving God the final say? Is it something that's expired that was time bound? Is it, is it, is it a timeless morality? Is it a matter of conscience or is it a foregoing liberty? If you put these thoughts through this filter, you're going to come out on the other side making a lot better decisions with your life making a lot better decisions with your life. For, for, for me personally, for me personally, profanity is never permissive, for me personally. And it just in my journey in life, that's the conclusion that I've come to. I'm not gonna talk to Jesus that way. I'm not gonna talk to you that way. I'm not gonna talk to my kids that way. And my big, I'll just tell you, my big hang up, my big hang up for profanity, the biggest reason, I think it's intellectual laziness. I think it's not taking the time to find the better word to express the feelings that you have. So that's, that's my big hang-up. And then the other one, it's, it's this idea of right here of, of forgoing a liberty, always. If the culture that I'm in finds it offensive, then I leave it alone. Does that, does that make sense? As you begin to think through these categories, how it begins to instruct your behavior and how it begins to dictate how you live your life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. The train's here. Lots of noises tonight. Lots of noises. Been a good series for you? Come on. We want to be a church that teaches you how to think. We're not going to give you the list. So Tim found this story and passed it on to me. So if you find good stories, come on, pass them on. We'll work them in. It's a powerful story. This is a true story. It's in this book, Why Do Christians Sin?, which I've just started to read, so I can't give it an endorsement yet. It's by a guy named uh, J. Kirk Johnston, so I'm just digging around. So I'll come back after I'm done. If it's good, we'll, we'll give it an endorsement. But he tells this story that he heard by a famous preacher, Leslie Flynn, who was a, a pro prolific writer. He lived up in the Northeast. He was a pastor teacher. He had a Christian radio broadcasting when that was really big in the day. And so in one of his broadcasts, he tells this true story that he had firsthand knowledge of. It says, Roger Sims was hitchhiking his way home. He will never forget the date, May 7th. His heavy suitcase made, it made Roger tired and he was anxious to take off his army uniform once and for all. And flashing the hitchhiking sign to the oncoming car, he lost hope when he saw that it was a really high-end sleek sports car. But to his surprise, the car stopped. The passenger door opened and he ran toward the car and he tossed his suitcase in the back and he thanked the handsome, well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps, the driver asked. Sure am, Roger responded. Well, you're in luck if you're going to Chicago. Well, not quite that far. Do you live in Chicago? I have a business there. My, my name is Hanover. And after talking about many things, Roger, a Christian, felt a compulsion to witness to this 50-ish, apparently successful businessman about Christ, but he kept putting it off till he realized that he was just 30 minutes from his home. It was now or never. So Roger cleared his throat and he said, Mr. Hanover, 
I'd like to talk to you about something very important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation, ultimately asking Mr. Hanover if he would like to receive Christ, to make a vow of devotion to him. To Roger's astonishment, very abruptly, the Cadillac pulled right over to the side of the road. Roger thought he was going to get kicked out of the car, but the businessman bowed his head and in that moment made a vow of devotion to Christ. He looked at Roger and he said, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Five years went by and Roger married. He had a two-year-old boy in a business of his own and packing his suitcase for a business trip to Chicago, he found the small white business card that Hanover had given him five years before. In Chicago, he looked up Hanover Enterprises and a receptionist told him that it would be impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover if he'd like. A little confused as to what was going on, he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You know my husband? She asked. Roger told how her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? It was May 7th, five years ago. I'll never forget the day because it was the day I was discharged from the army. So he says, is there anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention about sharing Christ with her husband? Since he had come so far, he might as well take the plunge. Oh, come on, that's a good phrase, isn't it? Mrs. Hanover, I explained the gospel. He pulled over to the side of the road and he wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day. Explosive sobs shook her body. Getting a grip on herself, she sobbed as she said, I prayed for my husband to embrace Christ for years and I believed that God was going to work a miracle in his life. Roger says, where's your husband now, Mrs. Hanover? She said, he's dead. True story. He was in a car crash the very night that he dropped you off and gave you a ride. You see, I thought God had not kept his promise to me. Sobbing some more, she added, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought that God did not keep his word. That's powerful. Stand with me. We don't know what kind of journey that you're on. We don't know what kind of questions you're asking. It might be questions that you're asking that are that are weighty questions, like Teresa McMinniman was, was, was asking in her City Life story. It might be questions like Mrs. Hanover. It might, you might be wrestling with some heavy things. And what we would say to you, come on, we don't have all the answers. But we know the one who does. Trust his heart. Trust his heart. Come on, let's worship together.